0: Good morning, you can be seated. You knew what to do. (laughs) Church is good to be with you. If you are visiting with us here for the first time or invited by a friend or family member, we're so glad that you have chosen to join with us as we seek to exalt the risen Lord Jesus. We pray most specifically that you would be refreshed in hearing the good news of the gospel and what it means to follow after him as one of his disciples. My name is Brett. I am one of the other pastors here at the church, if, as with Pop, as with Pastor Tom and his introduction. If we have not yet met or um, you don't know me, please make a point to, to seek me out after the service. I'm usually posted at the back door there, so easy to find me. This morning we're continuing our considerations in the book of 1 John as we're considering uh, this question of why has Christ come? And so if you would take with me your copy of God's Word, we'll be this morning in First John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles there in front of you, you'll find our scripture this morning on page 961. one. First John chapter 4. Let's consider by reading beginning in verse 7. for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you join with me in praying, asking that the Lord would be our great helper this morning as we consider his word? Our God and Father, we look to you this morning. Thankful to gather again under the great banner of this declaration of good news and that you have taken action, that you have taken it upon yourself to rescue your people, to rescue us from sin and death, and that we stand, as we've just sung, upon this solid rock. That that truth, that you are the one who pursues us, that you overtake us, that you transform us, that you lavish us. With love and grace, it is the firm foundation that we stand upon. For Father, if we are honest this morning and if we considered our own affections for you, our own faithfulness towards you, our own diligence, diligence to, to seek you out, Lord, it would not be a rock. It would be sinking sand. It would be an eroding foundation if we came before you purely on the basis of our pursuit of you. But Lord, how good it is to hear, to be reminded even confronted and rebuked that it is not our love for you in the end of the day that is the ultimate end, but it is most assuredly your great love for us that causes everything to make sense, that causes the foundation to be firm, that even gives us great motivation and purpose as we seek to love one another. So Lord, we ask through the ministry of your own Holy Spirit that you would help us this morning to consider as we meditate upon your word and these truths that are before us particularly upon a theme and a very word that is so common in our vernacular and so common in our culture and yet so often misunderstood. Help us consider this simple yet profound teaching of your love for us. And even in its familiarity, Lord, guard us from any sense of sitting back and assuming that we have this great doctrine, this great announcement figured out. We ask because we need the help of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, as you're probably aware, Christmas Day now being only seven days away, in very short time, that means very many of us will be opening gifts, the very gifts that are an expression of those given to us by ones that we love and those who love us. And there is a strong connection in our love and our gift-giving, isn't there? There is this connection in that we're often seeking to express some sense of our love, though often falling very short of the degree and the depth of the love, but some sense of a tangible expression of the love that we have for those that are in our lives. And so we seek to give gifts as these tokens of our love. Because as we give, we're seeking to really and hoping to affirm the substance and the presence of that love by giving. And it's within this idea of love and expression of love that we approach our text this morning here in 1 John, considering the love that God has for us. And by way of reminder, as we're taking these four Sundays here into December to consider and to ask this, this very simple question, why has Christ come? And we're putting that question before us as we seek to walk through various portions of Scripture here in 1 John, as John repeatedly will bring to the surface the reason that Christ has come or Christ has appeared or God has sent, and we're given some bit of clarity in that. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, answering that question by saying, well, Christ has come to take away sins. Last week, we looked at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, saying Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. And so in all of our talk of the coming of Christ as the one who's deliverer, the one who's savior, we must do so keeping in mind that it is God's own love that has brought all of this about. And I hope, and it is my prayer as I've been praying for us throughout this week, that we would have a a strong grasp on this wonderful truth that everything that we are exalting in and that Christ has done and why Christ has come and what Christ has accomplished, all of that finds its root, its source in the love of the Father. And I say that hoping and again praying that your vision of your Heavenly Father is not that of some sort of reluctant giver, but one, as the scriptures would open up to us, one who freely and gladly lavishes his love upon his people, which is the very fountainhead, the very source of our salvation. And so as we're considering 1 John 4, 9 and 10, we're doing so in response to the text, recognizing that John says twice, God sent his son. God's love is both revealed and defined when we consider that it is God who sent his Son. And that is why we're saying this morning, Christ has come because the Father loves us. So that's the focus of our meditation this morning. And let's consider it along these two lines of thought, the revelation of God's love and the very definition of God's love. By revelation of love, what I mean is there in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. As we said, there's many number of ways in which we would seek to make our love known to others, those that we love. And in fact, I would argue that genuine love is always moving towards that goal, Aiming to to reveal that love. How can I show my love towards you? How can I express my love towards you? How can I put my love in tangible form so that you might see and be affirmed and know that this love exists? And John writes, so that we might know that God has revealed his love for his people through the sending of his son. Now consider this by just recognizing that his love is made manifest or revealed when we consider who he sent. Think along those lines just for a moment. Whom did God send? Well, notice that John emphasizes that God sent his only son. It wasn't as if he had a thousand sons and sent one of them. It's not as if he decided to send an angel or a prophet, or even a written written testimony for this ultimate revelation. For this ultimate revelation, manifestation of His love, John says He sent His Son. Now, on an earthly level, we understand something of this and that there is a tremendously precious bond between a father and a son. There's an overwhelming sense of honor of affection, of care, of joy that is wrapped up in this relationship. And typically, when we, on a human level, have something so unique, something that is so valuable, so precious, we guard it. We protect it. We even hold it back. That the preciousness and the love and the value would not be tarnished or harmed in any way But not so the Father. His only Son, whom He loves and delights upon and cherishes in and seeks to glory, He does not withhold Him, but He actually sends Him. He loves sinners to such a degree that He sends His Son. And also notice that John says He sent this Son into the world. And when John says the world, he's not thinking of the planetary orb that we happen to be upon. It's a phrase that John often uses within his writing. Not describing the planet, but in a sense, the world system. More specifically, a world that's opposed to God. A world that is hostile to God. A world that is hardened to God's will and His ways. We know from Scripture that this world loves darkness rather than light. We know that this world hates Jesus because he testifies that its works are evil. And this is the very world that the Father sent willingly and intentionally his Son into. This is what John is saying. The love of the Father is so revealed in that he sent his best and most treasured object he has, his Son, to reveal the love that he has for his people but it's not only considered, considering whom he sent. His love is also revealed when we look at what John says as to why he sent him. To say that God sent his son, that we might live, that carries certain implications. For one, it speaks to the greatness of our own need. Christ did not come to be an accessory to our life. He said he came so that we might live. He did not come in order to spruce up an otherwise bland or tasteless life and to say what you need is a little additive, an enhancement. Your life is otherwise ordinarily moving in a good direction, but the next level, the next thing, the next kind of finishing polish that you need upon that life is my son. That's not at all what John says. Either he comes or we die. This is not a field trip. This is a rescue mission. And the fact that God sends his son, what it does is it shows us just how bad off we really are. Because the magnitude of the need is displayed in the ability and the qualifications of the one whom is sent. We know how this works. You get a paper cut. Mom comes with a band-aid. You break your arm. You go to the ER doc. You have a spinal injury. You go to the neurosurgeon. And John says that the Father sent the Son so that we might live. And that fact, it's given to us to alert us to the greatness of our need. What sort of need do we have? Well, whom has the Father sent? The Son. But the problem with us so often is that we begin to think that we're dealing with a Band-Aid sort of injury when what we need could be accomplished by nothing less than the Son of God Himself. It speaks not only to the magnitude of our need, but also it speaks to the greatness of His mercy. The biblical portrait of our condition, when you read through the Scriptures and say, who is God and who is man? Who did God create us to be and what has sin done to us? That image, that portrait, it's not an image of a struggling swimmer who mistakenly floated off into a rip current and Christ the lifeguard has to come and mercifully save them from this situation. That's not it at all. The biblical image is that we're rebels. We're willful transgressors. We're convicts, we're trespassers, we're transgressors who have brought the conviction of death down upon our own heads. Our lack of life, as John is pointing out, and our impending death is because of our sin. And we've been reminded of this the last few weeks. What is sin? We've been catechizing ourselves, as John has been teaching us, by saying sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of The law of God. Sin is lawlessness. It is rebellion against God. It's defaming his name. It's rejecting his goodness and really insisting upon our own way in the matter. Because this is true, God then would be perfectly and eternally just to leave us as we are. To leave us to the consequences of our sin. To leave us to face judgment. Or to say it this way. God could leave us exactly as we are. As lawbreakers awaiting judgment. He could leave us exactly as we are. Giving us over to judgment. And this would not compromise His goodness. It would not call into question His righteousness by one ounce. And yet... He hasn't. The Father's sending of the Son for sinners is the ultimate and the clearest manifestation of His love for us. Do you doubt the Father's love for you? Do you question that God would really pursue someone like you? The you that you know that you really are. Maybe the you that the person sitting next to you doesn't even know that you are. Do you believe that the Father would send the Son for someone like that? Well, John would say, then look to the manger, because God sent his Son to human flesh, the Christ child sent by God so that sinners might live. He would say, look to the cross. Consider not only his birth, but consider his death. See the Son of God slain for sinners. Christian, what is your first thought of God as your heavenly Father? You call yourself a Christian. God's Spirit abides in you. By biblical definition of terms, that means God is your Father. And upon hearing that, what is your first thought of God as your Father? Hear the repeated emphasis of Scripture. The fountainhead of all love and affection for sinners flows from the Father. The Father is full of love, overflowing of love towards His people. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that He sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Listen to John Owen. Do not see the Father as one who is angry, but as one who is most kind and gentle, Let us see the Father as one who from eternity has always kind thoughts towards us, His people. It is a complete misunderstanding of the Father that makes us want to run away and hide from Him. The psalmist said that they know you will put their trust in you. How sad that we cannot stay long with God in spiritual meditations. The Father loses the company of His people because they are so ignorant of His love to them. His saints keep thinking only of his terrible majesty, severity, and greatness, and so their hearts are not drawn to him in love. We must learn to think of his everlasting gentleness and compassion. We must remember his kind thoughts towards us in which we have been from in eternity. Let us remember however and willing he is to accept us. If we did this, then we would not be able to bear one hour's absence From him if we are beginning and going to begin to understand true love the kind of love that God has for sinners like you and I then we need to begin to see that this love is revealed by God the Father sending his son into the world however that's only half the story verse 9 is only half of the equation And if we stopped right here, we wouldn't have the full picture. Because what John says is the Father sending the Son is not only the revelation of God's love. What he says in verse 10, it is the definition of love. Look down at your Bibles at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'm so glad the inspired word of God is given to us in such plain language because love is a word that is often and ever increasingly hijacked. We take it hostage, we disembowel it, and then we refill it with our own definition of what we intend love to be. And I am graphic in that way for a reason because that's exactly what happens. John is careful to clarify, this is what I mean by love. Specifically, when we look to God and to his actions, we define the caliber and the depth of God's love. What he does here is he says that his love is defined when we consider, first of all, the object of his love. John says if we want to understand this love, we have to understand it from God's action of loving us, rather than our action of loving him. If you want to be clear on love, start there. God's action towards us, not your action towards him. Here's why. God, who's unchanging, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, most loving, Gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, has set his love upon the finite, the impure, the wicked, sinful, ungrateful, hard-hearted people like us. Meaning, of course, we ought to love God. When we consider who he is and who we are, He is the pinnacle of goodness and beauty and mercy and kindness. And God, John says, consider the fact that God loves us. The love of God, perhaps so familiar, perhaps the most familiar of God's attributes, and yet often the most misunderstood. Because there can be this tendency to have a completely disjointed and completely unbiblical idea of God's love. And it happens like this. When we talk about his love, and we hear about it, and we say, probably not out loud, but we say, I'm actually not that surprised to hear that he saves sinners. He's loving. And because he's loving... I'm pretty sure that he's pretty understanding. And because he's loving, well, that means surely he's going to take into account the situation. And usually what that means in our minds is that he's going to go easier on me. But to think this way, friends, is to completely dismember his attributes of justice and righteousness from the oneness that he is. He is not obligated to save. If you have an idea in your mind that you hear that God is loving and that that somehow puts his hand behind his back, forcing him to be gracious, you've misunderstood love. You've misunderstood God. And as a result, you misunderstand grace. Grace becomes yawningly boring. Because somewhere in your mind, you've convinced yourself that God is a jovial Loving and therefore obligated giver. The truth could not be further from that. Grace becomes boring when God's love is obviously for us. John wants to grab us by the shirt collar and say, Consider not your love for God, but God's love for you. Consider who he is. Consider who you are. And that he loves you. He set his love upon you. It's only when we consider our deserving death and his desire to give life in the face of that death, that grace then becomes amazing. The love of God is not fully appreciated until we feel some sense of the grace of God. Not only the object in whom he loves, but his love is defined when we consider the very expression of his love unless there be any doubts in our minds, John uses this term propitiation in verse 10 to describe the exact extent of his love. I recognize it's probably not a word you used four or five times this week in regular conversation. And because of that, we need to be extra careful to define what this word means. Propitiation essentially has to do with a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. It is a payment that sufficiently satisfies the demands of the payment. It's propitiated. And this is the phrase that gives substance and weight to what John says in verse 9. God sent his son. Great. To do what? To tell a story? To sing a song? To inspire obedience? To model goodness? No, ultimately, what John says is that he sent his son to die a death as an innocent sacrifice to redeem guilty lawbreakers. To understand propitiation, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And the images that we are given there help give definition and bright clarity to the terms that are used in our New Testament. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would stand before the people of God with an innocent lamb. And that high priest would slit the throat of that lamb. And as that blood poured out, he would press both his hands into that dying animal, dramatically signifying these hands on behalf of these people have caused this death. And this death, according to the will and promise of God, is sufficient to cleanse sin, to cover sin sin, to deal with sin. This innocent lamb is dying in our place because of the wrath of our sin. You see, the love of God becomes really flimsy and even sappy if we don't first understand the wrath of God against sin. It becomes a word that's completely hollow, that can mean whatever we want it to mean. But the Scriptures would always have us see the love of God next to the wrath of God so that we might understand the grace of God. God is love, and He is holy. He is fully and eternally righteous, and wherever there is injustice, evil, sin, debauchery, His wrath burns against it because He is God, because He is holy. God is perfectly just. He's not a judge who can turn aside because of a bribe. His justice cannot be bypassed or mediated in some other way, so that it just suddenly falls out. and there, we can throw justice aside for this one instance. God's wrath is his right response against sin. And we must never think that the propitiating death of Christ is merely just placating, though, or soothing. The wrath of God as if he were some crazed deity and thank God for the Son who stood up and stood in between us somehow calming this angry deity down so that now we can enter back into the table that is a completely wrong-headed understanding of the triune God and the salvation of sinners listen to Brid- Jerry Bridges Jesus did not soothe the wrath of God he endured it he did not suppress or extinguish as it would as we would extinguish a fire rather he absorbed it in his own soul the full unmitigated fury of god's wrath against sin to continue the metaphor he drank the cup of god's wrath to its last bitter drop so for us who believe the cup of god's wrath is empty Our difficulty so often with the whole idea of the wrath of God is that we have a very low view of sin and a low view of God's holiness. But when the Spirit of God opens our eyes to the teaching of Scripture and we see that God as He is, we see the love of God then the love of God becomes all the more amazing being backlit and illuminated by the reality of our sin and His judgment. And so when we consider Christ and His coming for the purpose of dying, what we are meant to do is survey the grand scope of redemptive history and conclude God has done this. The Father has willed this. The Son has accomplishment. Accomplish this, and the Spirit applies this to us. Sit, <coughs> excuse me, sinners chosen by God, adopted as sons through the redemption of the Son by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This should all sound very familiar, especially if we've spent any time in the book of Ephesians. Listen to Ephesians 1. Blessed be whom? God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This is why John Stott would make this driving point within his book, The Cross of Christ, seeking to clarify and correct a mistake that so many Christians get wrong and miss out on the goodness and the sweetness of God's love for sinners. Listen to what Stott says. It cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. Think about that. God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. He goes on. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because the Father loves us. If it is God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, It's God's love which did the propitiating. But how often and how frequently we completely disconnect those two, thinking that the Father loves me because the Son died for me, and you're forever holding back to consider Him as your Father because you have forgotten. No, the whole grand plan of redemptive history and the plan to save sinners begins with the fountainhead of God's love for his people. Therefore, Christ dies for his people. Yes, the Christmas story is one of deep and abiding love. It is the greatest love story ever told because the Father loves his people to the such a degree that he sent his son. Or as we're considering, Christ has come because the Father loves us. And this is yet another reminder for us that God's love is not meant to be simply contemplated. God's love is meant to be experienced. To know the love of God in Christ is the great aim of Scripture and the ministry of Christ here among us this morning. To not know facts about God. To not know doctrine and be able to systematize it alone. But to experience these facts, to experience these doctrines and say, these are for me because my Father loves me and has sent Christ that I might know him. This is God's desire for us this morning, church. He has given us His Spirit, the very one that He promised to be our helper. Please keep that in mind. If you struggle to lay hold of this wonderful truth that the Son died for you because the Father loves for you, loves you, especially if you have a disconnected or damaged understanding or relationship with your earthly father, and to make that next stair step up and say, okay, he is my heavenly father, begin with the truth of scripture and come alongside of it with the promise that he's given you his spirit to be your helper. The one who comes alongside you, the very one that he's given to us, that we are to pray and ask that his spirit would Help us to know these truths, not just intellectual assent, but to experience the reality of the love of God in Christ for us so that we might find our souls being enriched by them, so that we might find our faith being strengthened within them, our soul being nourished by them. To be spiritually minded is something that every Christian desires, but to be spiritually minded is what we're saying is more than just facts about God, but to delight in God, to rejoice in God, to be mindful of heavenly things, especially God's love for you revealed in the Son. So what this means is that even in your weakness and failure, you then turn and say, God's love for me revealed in Christ. In your sin and in shame, God's love revealed for me in Christ. In your doubt, in your suffering, in your struggle, you turn and you see God's love revealed to me in Christ. And that is why we say, good news. Christ has come because the Father loves us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Church, may we all find the love of God to be the tremendous comfort and source of awe that it's intended to be, especially during this Christmas season. Oh Lord God, how good it is to come to you and, of course, address you as Lord, of course, address you as our God, but to come in obedience of faith that we come to you as our Father. As we've been instructed to pray that we come to you, our Father, in heaven. And we most assuredly say, your name is holy. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done all of the things that we need for our daily bread, all of the sins that we need to be forgiven, all of the concerns that weigh upon our anxious heart, Lord, we come to the one to whom we call Father. Help us. Help us because we struggle tremendously to lay hold of the sweetness of this truth. Lord, we ask and we pray that by the very ministry of your word and spirit that you would cause these things to be experienced in our lives, that our souls might be lit to that sense of a holy flame that is in greater awe and greater wonder of your your grace and your mercy, continuing to hear, being reminded afresh of your love for us in Christ. We pray that you would transform us by it, that you would help us in our weakness and our doubt, our sin and our shame, that you would convict us in our pride and our self-righteousness, That you would awaken us when our hearts are dull and our, our minds are just so dim that we cannot grasp the wonder of what it is that's being sung and what it is that's being proclaimed before us. Lord, we pray, especially in this season, as we consider the birth of your Son, God become man, that you would cause us to draw immediately a line back to the very source of his coming. The very impetus for his being sent. Your love for us, we pray. Amen.